Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. I'm Austin Vitelliano. And I'm Carrie Allen. And I'm Pat Ormsby. And we're your hosts for today's show. Today, we'll be speaking about Puppy Mills with John Goodwin, but first, to the news. Italian luxury fashion house Prada Group and all of its brands, including Prada, Miu Miu, Churches, and Carshu, has announced that it will no longer use animal fur in its designs or products, starting with its spring and summer 2020 women's collection. I was looking at the article here, and uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at more than a dozen companies that have kind of followed suit, cities and states that have considered already doing the same thing or have already done this. Is this momentum becoming a movement? I think it is. I mean, I, I think it's pretty amazing, you know, seeing how this has trended. You know, once upon a time, fur was considered this, like, thing of the elite. And now I think it's it's almost the opposite. It's like fur is considered this retrograde thing that nobody who's kind of, you know, got any any good sense about them or, or any sort of, I don't know, like social heft would really, really get involved in. You know, you used to be, you'd go out to some society events and you'd see nothing but fur all the time. And I think these days it's, all, it's more likely to be the opposite with celebrities sort of bragging about the fact that they don't. And I think what's really interesting also is that the, the faux fur that is out there on the market right now is unbelievably convincing. It's unless you look at the stitching of the the faux fur coming out of the jacket, you it's really hard to tell just the difference between what's real and what's fake. Yeah, alternatives are really blurring the line with that. Where do you see this going in five to ten years? I mean, I personally think that this is, you know, one of the things I really like about hearing about bands is that, you know, there are times that I feel like certain movements sort of get ahead of where the culture is, whereas to me, I think these things are following where the culture is going, and it's it's just sort of like, as more and more people are kind of like, yeah, I don't want this stuff touching me, um, you know, the, the law catches up. You know, there are places where you have to push the law, obviously, and we, we try to do that and, you know, move society along through legislative means. But I also think there are places where society is pulling the long law along with it, which is great. Yeah, I think that it, in a way it could even bring fur back into mainstream fashion because people are excited about, you know, maybe the way something looks or the way something feels and then knowing that it is cruelty free um, I have a faux leather jacket that people approach me all the time asking where I got it and I just I just got it at a regular store but like I wear that with pride knowing that it has no animal involvement whatsoever and you look so cool <laughs> I always find this an really interesting subject actually you know that's one of my only concerns about the faux fur thing is like does it in fact bring back a trend where people can't quite tell I mean if you don't quite if it's become so convincing that you know you can barely tell looking at it that it's faux are the chances are there chances that consumers get misled because you know we've done investigations where we found that certain fur coats had things on them that were labeled as faux and that and in fact they were not um, you know hopefully i would assume that none of the big sort of leading fashion brands that are really excited about this and are doing faux fur obviously they're probably not doing that sort of stuff but it does make me wonder you know like how do you how what happens when a trend like this happens? You know, is faux fur overall a good thing or a bad thing for the animal movement? I think it's an interesting question. Um, in in a little bit of a depressing shift to our next story, the southern African nation of Botswana, home to 130,000 elephants, has lifted its ban on elephant hunting, a ban that has held since 2014 to help declining numbers recover from poaching 
and shrinking habitats. It's cited, you know, increasing conflict between humans and elephants, as well as the need to uh, monetize conservation efforts. But uh, not sure if trophy hunting is the solution to Botswana's human life co- conflict. But I'm opening it up to the to the table here to speak about. I mean, that would be a real surprise for our for our listeners if the Humane Society comes out and said, "Yes, humane <laughs> trophy hunting is the yeah. answer." Yeah, um, here's a twist. Yeah, no, I think that I mean, this is a tragedy. I think. I mean, like we all know. I mean, elephants are, have been in decline for a long time, and in fact, I, you know, I was reading yesterday that um, Botswana has done this in spite of the fact that poaching of elephants is up in the country about six hundred percent. So they are actually increasing the legal uh, number of elements that you can kill, even though they're they're seeing an increase in elephant poaching. I mean, it, it just strikes me as absolutely hideous. Um, you've got these animals that, you know, live in family groups that are known for, like, these really deep, intimate, wordless relationships with each other. They take care of each other. They stay together for their entire lives. And, I mean, what's the point? I mean, w- you've got so many more opportunities to engage with with commerce and with getting people into your into your country by doing more humane approaches to wildlife like safaris that don't involve hunting photography i mean people are really like love seeing these enormous charismatic animals up close and you know why you have to get hunting into it especially when these animals are disappearing from our planet and they have so many other habitat threats it just seems tragic to me and it's been proven time after time that tourism generates far more profitability jobs revenue across the board than hunting totally yeah if there was one animal that I would love to bring back, it would be the uh, grouchy-faced furball that made meme history all around the world. Grumpy Cat uh, has passed away. Uh, May, May 17th, whose real name was Tartar Sauce, passed from complications related to urinary tract infection. I can't tell you how many times those memes made me turn around, made, made my mood turn around. Uh, I, whether you're a cat lover, dog lover, what, what animal you love, um, Grumpy Cat was an internet sensation. Yeah, our, our thoughts obviously go to the family for their loss. Um, it's always tragic losing a pet, but I'm sure they can take comfort in knowing that their cat has brought millions of people joy. Um, with his grumpiness. With his grumpiness, which is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you guys was... Do you think that Grumpy Cat is the most famous animal of the decade? Because uh, while other animals on Instagram, like Doug the Pug, may have many more followers, uh, I don't think my grandma has a magnet on her fridge of Doug the Pug like (laughs) she does on Grumpy Cat because he just speaks to her in a way that no one else does. Well, we were just talking about it earlier. uh, The only other one I was really thinking of was was Lil Bub. Uh, who who got into HSUS, but Carrie, um, we were looking at someone else as well. Well, right? I was thinking, I mean, it's it's really interesting because if you think about animals, you, so I would say Grumpy Cat because certainly the most memed animal. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how are we defining fame? Because, I mean, we've got the blackwater fish, the the whale that SeaWorld was so notorious for, you know, keeping in its terrible tanks for so long, and then we've got Cecil the lion. I mean, so many of these animals become famous because someone does something awful to them. So it's kind of nice to have these animals who become famous of their own right, and because someone's taking good care of them and is out there recognizing their uniquenesses, and, you know. I've always been curious, you know, like, you know, we could do a quick survey. How many of you have ever thought that your animal could be the next grumpy cat? And then you could quit your job. and. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the ones I was thinking about was Toast. Toast was this really adorable uh, puppy mill rescue dog who had this 
um, big long floppy ears and a long floppy tongue to match that kind of fell out of his mouth uh, or her mouth, I think it was, um, at a very endearing angle. And um, I think one of the things that I really like about some of these internet animals is that a lot of the times the people who have adopted them or who have become their guardians not only kind of create these sort of celebrity cultures around them, but use that celebrity culture to do something good. And that's what, I mean, I think Grumpy Cat was one of those. I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of these animals go on to fundraise for admirable causes. And Toast um, was a, was one of the animals that um, starred in our own shelter pet project, uh, which is encouraging people to adopt animals from shelters. Well, of all nine lives you lived, Grumpy Cat, whether you enjoyed it or not, we loved having you in ours. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will speak with our guest for today's episode, John Goodwin, Senior Director of the Humane Society of the United States Stop Puppy Mills Campaign. Disasters can strike anytime. If you are told to evacuate, leave immediately and take your animals with you. Make sure you have all the supplies you need, and that includes proper identification. Remember, if it's not safe for you, it's not safe for your animals. Be prepared so everyone can be a survivor. For more information, go to humanesociety.org disaster. All right, welcome back. Now to our main story. Between September 2018 and April 2019, Undercover investigators from the Humane Society of the United States worked at six different Petland stores, revealing that Petland employees and managers routinely failed to take sick puppies promptly to a veterinarian. Puppies died in some of the stores without being taken to a veterinary hospital for severe illness. On the heels of this investigation, the HSUS released new information on May 28th that shows, quote, a distressing trend in Petland stores across the country. Sick and dying animals who desperately need help, being peddled to deceived customers. That quote comes from our guest for today's episode, John Goodwin, Senior Director of the Humane Society of the United States Stop Puppy Mills campaign. He has been a part of the animal protection movement for 30 years on the mark in August, confronting animal fighting and cruelty across the country. John Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so the HSUS has had a long history with Petland, and it seems like we're addressing issues on multiple fronts from misleading consumers to problematic suppliers to outright neglect of these animals. I mean, I've been reading the stories. What are your investigating uh, investigators seeing? What is your team seeing? And uh, what is your take on everything? Well, we initially looked at Petland as an organization over 10 years ago because the organization or the company was linked to puppy mills and all of their stores were getting puppies from these large-scale breeding operations where the mother dogs were just kept in these tiny, filthy cages. And now what we're looking at is not only the puppy mill problem, but the poor treatment and poor care of the puppies when they're in the stores. And what we're finding is, and this really isn't too big of a surprise, but uh, an eight-week-old puppy doesn't exactly thrive in a glass display case, you know, after being torn away from his or her litter mates. And in Petland store after Petland store, we found so many sick animals. We found dead animals. I think that the uh, uh, scene in the video that really sent the, made the point the strongest to me was when our undercover investigator was trying to open a freezer in uh, Sarasota, 
And another employee came up and, and grabbed the freezer door and slammed it shut and said, we don't look in the freezer for good reason. Oh, gosh. Yuck. Yeah. Um, and, and so you were talking about it a little bit, but f- for our listeners, what exactly is a puppy mill? Can we go into that a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, a, a lot of people have kind of a vague idea of what a puppy mill is, and they know it's something bad. But to be very specific, we're talking about a dog breeding operation for profit where corners are cut when it comes to animal care. Uh, generally, these are large-scale operations that raise animals like uh, agriculture commodities. They're not you know, like a pet in someone's home, but rather just a, a profit-producing machine in a kennel building. And they, just like with the factory farming issue, they try to put as many animals into the space they have, maximize production while keeping overhead down, cut corners where they can so that the profit doesn't get eaten away, and in the process, the dogs suffer. So it's a factory farm for dogs, basically. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we've gone in, and we seem to be focusing a lot on on Petland, and I was curious about, like, what was the motivation behind that? Or Petland is Petland one of the, like kind of the biggest actors? Are they one of the worst actors on this stuff? Or is is do they kind of exemplify problems people will find in other pet stores? Well, they do exemplify problems that people will find in other pet stores. They are the only national chain that sells commercially raised puppies. There are still several hundred independent pet stores that sell puppy mill dogs, and they have virtually identical problems. But Petland, they're the biggest that sells these sorts of dogs, and they also fund legislative efforts to take away our right to pass local laws to protect dogs and puppy mills. So there are over 300 local governments who have passed bans on the sale of puppies in pet stores. And for many years in a row, Petland has tried to advance legislation that would ban local governments from being able to do these sorts of ordinances and preempt those sorts of laws on the book. So they've been very hostile, and uh, we certainly don't appreciate anyone trying to take away our right to pass animal cruelty laws, animal protection laws at any level of government. Right. So rather than try to reform their own behavior, they're resisting reform at every turn, it sounds like. Yeah, and it's kind of, this is one of those kind of stories that's, it's, it's kind of funny, it's kind of sad. Uh, I ran into some of the Petland executives recently at a, a pet industry trade show, and they they said, listen, you know, we sent a letter to the USDA saying that they might want to look at the standards of care for the dogs in the commercial breeding kennels. And I said, that's great. Um, you know, what does a stamp cost nowadays, like 70 cents or something? And then how much money was spent on lobbyists in 12 or 13 states trying to block groups from being able to pass local animal protection laws. One just, you know, cost them you know, some huge sum of money, and the other cost them a postage stamp. So it showed where their priorities are. Zing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did they respond? Uh, did he change the subject? Yeah. yeah. Good move. Yeah. 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 I mean, revealing my own, like, former, former ignorance on this stuff, I mean, I think everybody comes into the animal welfare movement at different points, right? So when I was in grad school, I, I lived in a town where there was a pet land, and one of the things I used to do for relief from writing theses and, and trying to work on a novel was I would go to pet land and go visit the puppies because I just thought it was so sweet, and I would spend hours there just, like, looking at the puppies 
puppies and like taking the puppies out of their cages. And, you know, I only stopped actually when I started noticing that one puppy had a sore on its foot that never seemed to get treated. And I went back, you know, week after week and it never seemed to get any better. And I called the attention of, of the person who was running the place who was barely older than I am to the puppy and never seemed to get anything done about it. But I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about what the sort of what consumers should know when they go into a pet store about what they're seeing and what the reality is. Well, the, the pet stores do have an advantage when it comes to selling puppy mill puppies, and that's that these puppies are very cute, and, you know, they kind of sell themselves. And the salespeople always assure, oh, of course, these, these aren't from a puppy mill. Now, the competitor down the street, that's a different story. But our store, of course, only gets from the best, highest quality breeders. They always have these sorts of reassurances. But the thing that people need to ask themselves is, if you have a pet store and you've got 40 glass display cases you want filled with puppies, does anyone really believe that they're going to keep these display cases constantly filled without going to high-volume breeding operations? Of course not. They're not going to have a Rolodex with 450, 500 responsible breeders who have a litter occasionally, then they just call through constantly. No, no. They're going to go to four or five puppy brokers who have a steady supply of puppies from these high-volume puppy mills. Their business model depends on that sort of mass production. And when people go into these stores, they need to ask themselves, there's a cute puppy. Where's that puppy's mother? That's the key question. Because the the mother's never there. The mother's always in a cage in Missouri or someplace like that. Um, I'm curious if we can ex- expand on that a little bit. What are characteristics of responsible versus irresponsible breeders that consumers can look out for when they're on the search for a new puppy? Well, when we re- recommend people, you know, when people are wanting to get a new animal for their home, of course, we always recommend first go to a shelter or rescue. There are a lot of homeless animals. And there's this view that there's been progress made in getting the shelter euthanasia numbers down. And, and that's true. But there's still so many good, healthy, adoptable animals that die because no one goes and adopts them. So I always recommend that first. But if you are seeking out a specific type of puppy and and, and you're going to a breeder, you you need to go to a breeder who's going to let you meet the mother dog and see where the mother dog lives. And the difference, I can describe the differences in two ways. One is in terms of values. A responsible breeder is going to have as many questions for you as you're going to have for them. They have a dog that they love. This dog had a litter of puppies. They helped birth the puppies. They want to make sure those puppies go to a good home. Contrast that with a pet store or one of these websites that ships puppies sight unseen. They'll give a puppy to anybody as long as they can uh, pay the bill or at least qualify for some sort of uh, finance program. Big difference in values there. And Generally, the, what we would call the responsible breeder are generally people who are, you know, they're usually focused on one breed. They're, they're happy to show you the mother. They've done genetic testing to make sure that the dog doesn't carry some sort of congenital problem that they pass on to their offspring and a whole host of things. I would say, has there been an increase in the history of Petland that you've been working with of uh, neglect that you have been seeing or have a lot more stores been exposed in the recent investigations that you've seen. Has this always been an underlying problem, or have you seen this trend increasing? So I came to this campaign in 2016, and so the town of Sarasota had just passed a ban on the sale of puppy mill dogs in pet stores, and uh, Petland defied that law for several years. But 
you know, during that lobbying effort, uh, the staff that I ended up teaming up with had come across a gag order that the store had given to a customer who had returned a puppy who was sick. And the gag order came from this company, Positive Solutions, who is a warranty company that Petland uses. And it said that if, you know, if we're going to give you a refund for this puppy, you cannot talk to the attorney general of the state. You cannot talk to the Better Business Bureau. You're not allowed to talk about this on social media. It, it, it was a gag order. And I think the very fact that they had a gag order in existence answers that question. These have been problems going on for quite a while. And uh, we just were the first organization to really be able to get behind the scenes and see what was happening behind closed doors. Do you have any updates for us since the investigation released this new uh, information on May 28th that we can speak about? Well, there's been a lot of attention brought to this, and I've looked on social media, on Twitter, and different different social media platforms, and I've seen that there is a growing awareness among the general public. I'm seeing a lot more people who I have no idea who they are, and they're commenting on this, and they're sharing the undercover footage, and they're sharing some of the news articles, and they're they're saying, hey, you got to be careful with these puppy selling pet stores. And so I think that you know there's been some progress made there. Now, the important thing is not just that we educate people, but that, that that more aware population helps pass legislation that turns these these gains into permanent gains. And so that's what we're working on, trying to advance more legislation to stop the sale of puppy mill dogs in pet stores. So we can talk to our local legislators and um, sign pledges online uh, that would help uh, further these efforts? Absolutely. And when you go to humanesociety.org, there's a number of places to sign up, whether it's to be a, a member or a sustainer to help fund our campaigns and our work or to have a volunteer role, whether it's a district leader program, or to work directly with the campaign, whether it's Stop Puppy Mills or Farm Animal Protection or Cruelty Campaign or, you know, or, or the people working on any of the other issues. So there's a lot of opportunities on the website to get more actively involved. Wonderful. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the consumer protection angle around how dogs are being sold these days. Like specifically, I know, you know, I think that more and more people hopefully are developing an awareness around what is the real truth about dogs in pet stores. But one of the things we deal with, obviously, now in, in this particular day and age is the kind of deceptive practices that can go on with online sales. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, I know there have been cases where you've got, like, you know, fluffy, wuffy poodle breeder has what looks like this amazing farm in the country, and, you know, the dogs are shown, you know, galloping across rolling hills, and then when you actually say, hey, I would like to buy a dog from you, they're like, oh, no, you shouldn't come visit our farm. I'll meet you in a parking lot. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and, like, what co consumers need to be careful about if they're looking at dogs online? I think that all of the sales mediums that puppy mills use, and let's just kind of go through the list. There's the pet stores, there's shipping sight unseen through these websites, there's flea markets and outdoor markets, the side of the road, and then there's that model that you, you touched on where they run an ad somewhere, you speak with them, and they meet you at some remote location. All of those have one thing in common. They keep the consumer away from the mother dog, and that's all you need to know. If you can't meet the mother dog and you can't see the condition she lives in, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that, that's, mm -hmm. that's so the fundamental thing. So if you're buying thing. a puppy, try to meet the mom and see where the mom is living. Absolutely. It's not loophole free. I mean, that, you know, if, if you're in an area with a lot of puppy mills, 
they could you know have a house somewhere that they stage things but generally in most areas that's not going to be the case it, it's the best way to really have some sort of reassurances mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully you're you know if you're dealing with a breeder you're dealing with somebody who's going to have a lot of questions for you because that's really going to give you a hint as to whether or not they're just trying to make a buck or they actually are concerned about where the the puppy goes i mean the best ones will tell you hey 10 years old you can't have that dog anymore bring her back to me yep totally i mean i back before the days that my family would rescue animals you know we actually adopted cocker spaniels adopted meaning we bought from a breeder um and we went to i I still remember this was this was when we were living in holland and we went out we had to drive out into the country and we met this woman and she lived in this tiny little house and she had a single breed as a single litter of cocker spaniel puppies and you would have thought that we were applying to go to college. I mean, it was like, you know, she wanted to make sure that my sister and I were gentle with them. She spent hours talking to my parents about them. She spent hours sort of like observing us to the point that my mom and dad were like joking about it when we were driving home, you know, like what are these dogs made of platinum and things like that. I mean, that's the kind of thing you want to see if you're actually going to go to a breeder, which again, you know, given how many fantastic animals are out in, in shelters and rescues still is not always the first choice. But if you're determined to get a dog of a particular breed, that's the kind of care you want to see. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you're making a 12 to 15 year commitment when you take in a puppy. So if you're going to make a 12 to 15 year commitment, surely you can spend an hour or two assuring the breeder that you're going to provide the care the dog deserves. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to make a 12 to 15 year commitment, there are a lot of senior animals that are out there waiting for your love too. So make sure that you check about, uh, you know, where the rescues, local rescues are around your area, having the senior dogs around as well. Um, I am biased. I like well, old we, dogs. We, we have a new senior dog in the Puppy Mills campaign. So oh, yeah? uh, Kathleen Summers, who's our director of research and communications, uh, went to the Prince George's County Animal Shelter. I think they were actually going to look at a, a gerbil, and he got adopted for her son, you know, his first son, uh-huh. and uh, the gerbil was gone. And they found this uh, black lab, his gray muzzle, about ten years old. And they said, you know, let's let's just take her home. Wow. So she. Uh, she comes to the office every day now. Warming my heart up. I love it. I know. And I love that gerbils are flying off the shelves at PG <laughs> County. That's awesome. They're gone. Yeah, I, I, was, I was not expecting That's the story to unexpected. begin with that. But yeah. you know, that is wonderful. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Jenna Maraska. If disaster strikes, you need a plan that includes your pets and proper identification is critical. Who's a good girl? Microchip your pet and register the information. Keep a collar and ID tag on your pet at all times and make sure to include a second phone number. For more tips, go to humanesociety.org disaster. Make sure your pet is a survivor. Welcome back. We are here with John Goodwin, Senior Director of the Humane Society of the United States Stop Puppy Mills Campaign been having a great conversation about the investigation that revealed chronic problems with sick and sometimes uh, dead puppies at the Petland stores. Uh, we wanted to take a second to rewind a little bit. Uh, you've been in the animal movement for almost 30 years now, John, and we wanted to, uh, you know, how did you get started in the movement? What was your inspiration? How did, uh, uh, how did this begin for you? My grandmother always instilled these values in all of us. Uh, she was very passionate about, you know, just protecting animals. 
she lived on a little farm. Well, it was about 107 acres, but it wasn't like a commercial farm. It was more after my grandfather passed away, she could just, you know, he left her a good amount of money. And so she had ducks and turkeys and chickens and miniature horses and donkeys and a a mule and goats and guinea fowl and peacocks and dogs. And they were all basically her pets. One day, one of the turkeys even got sick, and she had two turkeys, so she took them both to the vet because she wanted to make sure that, you know, if one was sick, the other didn't, you know, get something too, and let's get this taken care of. And in the parking lot, some guy came up and said, oh, turkeys, which one's Thanksgiving, which one's Christmas? And she, in her southern uh, grandmother way, uh, you know, basically beat him from one end of the parking lot to the other. Bless your heart. So, (laughs) so, and so... That was the values that, that we were all given. You know, these are little defenseless beings that you're supposed to take care of and protect. So when I was 16, I went to um, see some bands play, and one of them was selling a seven-inch record that had a, a little booklet in it about animal protection issues. And I became a vegetarian about two days later after processing all the information I read, and there was a list of uh, organizations to uh, write to for more. Because remember, this is 1989. You couldn't get on the Internet. So I wrote to these organizations and received a lot of stuff in the mail, and uh, I knew some friends at school who were vegetarian, and a couple were starting to become vegan, and I started talking to them about these issues, and and we found some local organizations, got involved, and just dove right in. And the animal protection movement, it it wasn't just, you know, puppy mills that we're talking about. You've also dealt with um, animal fighting practices, like dog fighting. You were confronting a lot of the cruelties there as well as cockfighting. So in the 1990s, I was very focused on the fur industry. And then in 2000, I came to work for HSUS. So uh, when I came to HSUS, we were making a push to try to ban cockfighting in the last states where it was legal. And so I was very focused on animal fighting up until uh, about the middle of 2015. And that's when you transferred into the the Stop Puppy Mills, transitioned into the... I spent a little bit of time lobbying on Capitol Hill for the organization, and then I came to the Puppy Mills campaign in early 2016. So largely a lot of your work, is it mainly legislative, um, you know, on this advocacy side? What what is the makeup of of your day-to-day? Well, with the animal fighting work, it was uh, legislation was certainly a big part of it because there wasn't a consumer angle there. You know, with for example, with puppy mills or fur coats or something like that, part of the battle is educating consumers so they make responsible purchasing decisions. But with something like animal fighting, it was simply a matter of uh, taking public opinion, turning that into a change in law, and then making sure that law was enforced. Uh, today, with the puppy mills campaign, legislation is a big part of it. But so is our research, so is our undercover investigation, so is our outreach to allies in the industry and work with uh, you know, p- people in the pet industry who are on our side. Um, all of those things are a big part of it. Uh, every issue kind of has a different set of tactics that fit. John, can you talk a little bit about how you've seen, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're still much engaged on this work, but you know, over the course of the time I've been here, I feel like I've seen sort of our approach and also even the kind of animal fighting that's taking place out in the world sort of shift over time. I mean, do you have a sense of where that issue lies these days? I know it got a lot of press during the Vic case and some other things that have sort of come up in the culture, but are we making progress on that? Is it, it, how's it moving? 
Well, I think that a lot of progress has been made. I still think there's a lot to do. We have staff who are focused on the issue now, and they're, they're doing a really excellent job. And I think that they can see a light at the end of the tunnel, but there's still a little ways to go. But when I came to HSUS, cockfighting was still legal in Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Louisiana. It was only a felony in about 17 states. Today, it's illegal in all 50 states. It's a felony in either 42 or 43 and there's been five upgrades to the federal law in the Congress. So why is that important? Well, animal fighting is a gambling crime. It's an animal cruelty crime, but it's also a gambling crime. And when we had the misdemeanor laws, they simply weren't effective. You could win $10,000 if you uh, won the cockfighting derby. You're not going to be deterred by a $125 fine. So we, we got the penalties up to felony level in a lot of states. We got federal laws passed as well, uh, criminalizing animal fighting, attending animal fights, uh, possessing animals with intent to fight. Those can be used whenever an animal fighting criminal operation has an interstate nexus. Uh, what that means is something is crossing state lines. Yeah, and you've been to these situations where people are bringing their kids to these fights and stuff like that, right? I mean, and that was one thing that the uh, in the in 2014. We got language in the farm bill that made it a federal felony to bring someone under the age of 16 to an animal fight. So all of these steps have built a body of law that in areas where it's been utilized, where there's been enforcement, it has shrunk the, uh, these industries. It still exists, but there are definitely fewer people involved in dogfighting and cockfighting today than there were. Yeah, that's great to hear. So, John, you've been in the field and on the scene for a lot of um, dogfighting and cockfighting rings. Um, do you have stories that you uh, would would share that have stood out to you in your career? There's been a lot. Um, there have been cockfighting operations where they were raided when there was a children's birthday party happening on the other side of the property. There's been uh, animal fighting operations, cockfighting raids, where uh, the subsequent investigation led to local law enforcement being indicted for taking bribes. Uh, many, many, many stories over the years. It's, uh, uh, it's definitely an interesting subculture um, with, with some particularly uh, interesting characters. But one of the most, uh, when I look back, that one of the stories I was fond of is in Tennessee, I had gotten directions to a cockfighting pit called the 440 Club. And it was off of uh, I-40 on exit 440. That's why it was called the 440 Club. So I was calling the sheriff, and it was in this little town. Ironically, the town was named Cock County. But it was spelled differently, C-O-C-K-E. So I'm calling this sheriff and saying, listen, there's this cockfighting pit. I've given you the directions. These are the dates that they're having these derbies where people bring their birds, and they pull their money, and they have these fights. And they just weren't doing anything. So... Fast forward a couple months, I'm going to South Carolina to lobby for a bill that would raise the penalties for animal fighting there. And I get a call from an FBI agent, and he says he'd like to meet. And I'm like, oh, whoa, okay, yeah, well, what's this about? And he's like, well, I, you know, let's just meet. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not in town. I'm in South Carolina. And he's like, oh, great. Well, I'm in East Tennessee. It's not too far of a drive. I'll just drive over. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I meet this guy. No idea what he wants to talk about. Come to find out, the sheriff I had been speaking to is under investigation for taking bribes from the cockfighters and from some other uh, unsavory individuals in the county. And uh, he said, listen, work with us. You know, we, we, we need some experts on hand when we do the raid. 
And they were actually primarily, they, they indicted the owners of the 440 pit, but there was a much bigger pit in the area, which I could not figure out the exact location of. And it was called the Del Rio pit. And Del Rio is one of the biggest cockfighting pits in the nation. And so uh, they took us along when they did the raid. And um, at first, there were a bunch of headlines saying, oh, the FBI shut down this cockfighting operation. It must be because of the interstate gambling. Uh, then a few weeks later, they indicted their first sheriff's deputy. And uh, they indicted a whole bunch of people in that sheriff's department and cleaned house. And uh, it was really interesting because it showed how animal fighting, you know, we always have this, this statement that it goes hand in hand with other crimes. I mean, this was a perfect example. And you know, the, one of the sheriff's deputies got arrested for selling a brick of cocaine to an undercover FBI agent. And when he was on the, on the stand in court, the judge asked him, why'd you do this? And he said, well, I saw the cut that the sheriff was getting from the cockfighting pits, and I saw the cut that the deputy sheriff was getting from the uh, illegal slot machines at the gas station, and I saw the cut that the, you know, this other guy was getting from the counterfeit NASCAR stuff we were selling, and I just wanted to get a piece of it too. And it really showed how this animal fighting led to this corrosive effect that was devastating to the small county. So, Chung, maybe can you could talk a little bit? I, I feel like I've heard people make this argument that, you know, animals fight and, you know, like what's so bad about a couple of chickens fi fighting. Can you can talk a little bit about what actually goes on in a cockfighting pit? Sure. Well, first off, with roosters, for example, they will get into a little tiff over hens or the best habitat in the jungle or whatever. But if they all fought to the death every time two males saw each other, the species would have been extinct a long, long time ago. But what they've done, and, and you see this with, with meat and eggs as well, people would take breeds of chickens and, and selectively breed them for certain purposes. So with Egg-laying hens, for example, they would breed the hens uh, for you know to have as breeding stock for egg production that laid the most eggs, and they do that generation after generation after generation, and you end up with hens that could lay you know 250 eggs a year as opposed to 30, which would be more natural. And you would see that same thing with meat production, where they would uh, breed to enhance certain characteristics, so you would have birds who would reach a weight that would be considered obese when they're 45 days old. Same thing with cockfighting; they had this selection for interspecies aggression and over with enough breeding animals selected for those qualities, you ended up with this exaggerated level of interspecies aggression. You mm -hmm. add to that certain adrenaline boosting drugs and the fact that they have either knives or ice pick like instruments called gaffs tied to their legs and they're put into an enclosed area where one can't escape. That's not in the least bit, uh, Natural. symbolic of what happens yeah. in the jungle at all. Mm -hmm. It's completely unnatural. Yeah. And uh, it ends up being pretty gory. I don't know why you don't have a Netflix show yet. <laughs> this is uh, insane, some of the stories that you've, that you've witnessed in the field. I just I couldn't imagine seeing some of those things, but uh, really, really, really interesting history. So, um, John, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Again, John Goodwin, Senior Director of the Humane Society of the United States Stop Puppy Mills Campaign. Thanks again so yeah, much for being you. on the Thanks show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us on today's episode. If you want to learn more about Puppy Mills and all of our other campaigns, please visit humanesociety.org for more information. And we want to hear from you. If you have any questions, reactions, or suggestions for future topics, please reach out to us at podcast at humanesociety.org. That's all we have for you for today. Please join us next time on Humane Voices. Humane Voices.